The question I want to explore this evening is uh, what is the nature of mind? Yeah? It's actually quite a problematic question because what is the nature of mind makes it sound like the mind is a thing that has a nature. Um, you know, Buddhism often talks about its nature is a no nature. It's a very common refrain, but that can sound just a bit clever. Um, so I want to um, say a few things about that tonight and then we'll finish with a short meditation again. And um, I think what I'd like to do is finish with a mantra as well, um, because the nature of mind is a mystery. I don't actually know what the nature of mind is, and nor do you. <laughs> um, so it's good to be clear, isn't it? Um, all the people on YouTube, you don't know, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, so we're all on the in the same boat. Um, so I want to I want to just reiterate this point that I don't know that we've all. It's very difficult to grasp and very difficult to keep hold of, is that we are uh, we are alive in the midst of mysteries. We really are. I don't mean I don't know the fact of technology or the you know. Or I just mean our ordinary human consciousness, our everyday consciousness, is a very very deep mystery. Nobody knows how consciousness arises. Nobody knows how I can look out now and see you all and you can see me and see the shrine and see the lights. Nobody knows how we do that. In, in philosophy, it's a hard problem. How does matter create consciousness? And the assumption has been that matter creates consciousness, that brain creates consciousness, that consciousness is an epiphenomena of the brain that if the brain is complex enough, if you've got enough neural pathways, if you get enough um, chemical reactions, consciousness mysteriously arises in a way which nobody understands. It's actually, according to Ian McGilchrist, who we've been um, in discussion with in this series on the nature of mind, he says basically when you think that matter creates consciousness, you're basically saying that consciousness is a miracle. How can something utterly unlike matter arise out of matter? Yeah. It's a bit like saying you'd get um, algebra out of rhubarb. Yeah? How could something utterly unlike rhubarb grow out of rhubarb? Yeah? Um, it's highly problematic. And more and more contemporary philosophers and scientists are questioning that whole assumption that matter precedes consciousness, which is actually the opposite of the Buddhist view. The Buddhist view has always been that mind precedes world. And one of the things you're starting to see in quite a, few, a range of contemporary thinkers and scientists is something more like a Buddhist view, which is that mind precedes world, yeah? not that world precedes mind. Um, actually, all sorts of problems are actually, well, I won't say solved, but you get more interesting answers if you turn the picture the other way around, that consciousness precedes matter. In fact, Ian McGilchrist says that matter is a state of consciousness, like um, water has a diff all sorts of different states. It has water, you can pour it over your head and it's really nice on a hot day like this. Or it can be ice and it can drop on your head and break your head. Yeah? But it's, you know it's the same substance. It's in it can be in different states. It can be in steam, it can be in water. It can be something that you can break your head on. And so he thinks that matter is a state of consciousness in that way. Whatever that, what that really means. <laughs> Ooh. Pause for thought. You know, um, anyway, we're, what I want to emphasise 
is that we're in the midst of mysteries, you know, like just today uh, for the Nature of Mind project. And do do grab one of these on the way out um, this, and, and uh, sign up for the project. You can just sign up. And then there's all these videos of conversations we've been doing for the last six months. And we're going to be culminating the Nature of Mind project with a, a big retreat, over 100 people <coughs> that there's still places on, uh, in which we'll spend a, a week exploring the nature of mind. It, it needs much more exploration than I can possibly do in three half hours of little sessions like this on a Wednesday evening. Um, really, I've only hardly scratched the surface on the questions and on that retreat, we'll really go into it in much more depth. Um, these are like these four sessions and you can catch up with them on YouTube. They are, those of you on YouTube now, you can catch up with the other uh, films on YouTube. Um, they're like espresso versions of that retreat, yeah? Um, or Nespresso versions. <laughs> uh, that was a joke, but in my... Uh, <laughs> they, don't all, they don't always work. It's a dangerous joke. So we're in the midst of mysteries. You know, we, just today, um, Jan Vach was interviewing um, on, on Zoom um, Eben Alexander, who's a neuros, uh, neurosurgeon, and... Um, He's had the most profound near-death experience that's ever been documented. He was in a coma for seven days, uh, practically brain dead. Um, they were about to turn all. They were about to turn the machine off and say, you know, that let, just let. He had um, a kind of a meningitis, a bacterial meningitis, which is nearly always fatal. He went down from a ten percent chance of recovery to a two percent chance of recovery, with the assumption he'd never speak again. He wouldn't be able to feed himself again. He'd never walk again is now, we've just been interviewing him. It is actually a miracle he shouldn't be alive. There's no, our science doesn't explain why he's alive. Yeah? Uh, it just doesn't, you know. And scientists are very interested in him because on the basic fact, he should be dead. Yeah? Um, so we've just been talking to him and when, the more you talk to someone like that, you, you realize again, a little bit more freshly, a bit more vividly, that you don't know, that you're in a world of mysteries in which things that shouldn't happen can happen, yeah? Um, and I won't be certain. I felt slightly, frankly, that he was a little bit too certain for my taste. Um, I won't be certain. But I definitely know I don't know. And then one of the things he was remarking on, because we've also done conversations about children who have past life memories, and if, if the project continues, it's not quite clear yet if it will go into a season two. I hope so, because I want to interview Jim Tucker, an American psychologist who's done the most, the longest studies on children with past life memories. But according to the research he quotes anyway, there's been 1,700 solved cases in the US of children who, below the age of five, who talk about a pride and that was, that was the conditions they were in. Um, you know, you have to be a bit careful, I think, with that word solved, because there could be other explanations, um, as there could for so many things. But what they do with those experiences, and they're relatively common, at least they're not completely uncommon. I've had people at this class afterwards saying, oh, when I was a child, I remember, uh, my mother was telling me I said this and I said that. Um, it's too easy to dismiss it or to be credulous about it and completely take it on. And usually people are one or the other or sometimes flip between the two. Um, all I want to leave with that is that we're in the midst of mysteries and we need to keep on waking up to that. Uh, we need to wake up out of our sleep of certainty um, if we're going to live a more vital, uh, valuable life. Yeah? 
Um, very difficult to do because human beings are very habitual and we settle into certainties only too easily. So that's my first point, that we're, we're in a world of mysteries. And one of the things I'm trying to do with this Nature of Mind project is to keep on opening up to that, especially opening up to the deep problems within nihilism, uh, sorry, within materialism, within, within secular materialism, within scientific materialism. Uh, we interviewed Bernardo Castro, who's a very, very remarkable thinker, and he said that um, scientific materialism is stupid. And he used to work for CERN, so he you know, had some authority behind that. He, he wrote a book called Why Materialism is Baloney, yeah? um, <laughs> which I think is another word for stupid. Um, so I thought I'd start with my own experience of the nature of mind. I have to, to use that word, those words, which are problematic. And then I want to say some more practical things about it, because if we're not careful, we just get mired in... Uh, speculation, or in an overvaluing of not knowing. Um, a friend of mine who'd been watching the seminar uh, said to me, uh, challenged me after last week, saying, "You're emphasising not knowing too much." Um, interestingly, you can actually get rather fixed on not knowing as well. <laughs> you can think, "No, that's the answer. Is that you don't know." Actually, it's another fixity. Yeah? Um, Buddhism isn't doesn't get fixed on not knowing. In fact doesn't really use that language very much. Buddhism, and anyway, I'll come to Buddhism in a moment. Um, so my experience of the nature of mind, at least that might be a way of talking about it, was uh, almost 31 years ago today, I was ordained on a four-month retreat in Spain. Um, it was the first time I'd worn robes, it was the first time I'd shaved my head. Um, in the midst of that four-month retreat, and I was 30 at the time, so it was, very intensive experience, a very, it was a completely life-changing experience. And in, that, in, the, in the context of that, I was ordained into the tree around a Buddhist order and given this name, Maitreya Bandhi. Um, uh, you, the, the ceremony of ordination is very, very sacred and has two parts, a, as it were, a private part, where it's just you and the person who ordains you, and a public element where you declare your uh, dedication to the Buddha Dharma, uh, in a company of, like, of people doing the same thing. And I had my private ceremony uh, in June um, in 1990. At the end of that ceremony, um, I, I, I closed my eyes, and I, to use this language, I had, a, you could say, an experience of the nature of mind. Um, except for I would never have used that, that language to describe it because it, it's too fixed in a certain sort of way, as if, I fa as if you know, the nature of mind is 42 or something, you know, um, or, yeah, I kind of can tell you what it is, which is just nuts, you know. You can't even say what the nature of love is, for heaven's sake, or the nature of generosity. You never get to it, do you? Think, yeah, kind of got generosity, don't need to think about that anymore. Um, it, it's, 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 it's what philosophers would call an infinite game. Um, you never get to the end of, uh, of the nature of mind. You never get to the end of love. You never get to the end of wisdom. Um, they're not things you have and know. They're something you're constantly deepening in, hopefully. Anyway, I had this experience uh, of... Um, never know quite... Experiences like this are very, very difficult to talk about, and you, one has to be careful talking about them because I'm not making any kind of claim... Um, uh, about myself whatsoever, but I seem to, for a, 
who knows how long move outside of uh, time and space. Um, uh, it was as if um, it was as if the walls of self uh, just disappeared. It was as if the walls between self and the world had just disappeared. It was as if um, the person I thought I was, what I thought was important, all of that was just, well, not, not irrelevant, just like not very interesting, um, of no important consequence. Um, I seem to, like one way I put it to myself later, because in, in the experience, of course, there were no words, but one way I put it to myself later was that I'd been looking at my life and this like complicated thing of that I, I was quite an unhappy young man, uh, even very unhappy at times, and I'd been sort of caught up in this little thing of my life, of trying to solve it, including trying to solve it through Buddhist practice. Um, and then in this experience, I realised that what was looked like a few sort of funny lines was actually part of this vast tapestry, and those funny lines suddenly made sense in this incredible tapestry of beauty which I was part of um, but not importantly so but not unimportantly so either uh, it's an experience that goes beyond the personal and the impersonal um, it both feels as, as intimate as anything you could ever possibly experience and at the same time nothing to do with you except nothing to do with you is a bit too crude my experience of it was that self was sort of there. It's, it was just transparent and, of, and, and, and no longer a problem. No longer something I tripped over. It, it had become a window through which I could see, or I felt I could see, or afterwards I thought about it in these terms. It became a window in which I could see how things really were, yeah? which were infinite, um, uh, boundless, um, uh, sort of loving, except for that's too emotional a word, um, uh, without any possibility of problem was one of the things that I experienced. Um, there was no possible problem in that experience. I, I felt that nothing could injure it or, um, or, or, or break it in any way, including uh, my own death, for instance. Um, my own death became an, an un, a non-problem in that experience. Um, I don't know how long it lasted for, and it and I and what was odd, interesting about it, it was not that it, in before that moment I was in a very concentrated state. I remember at my ordination I was actually just very nervous. Um, I was rather given to being nervous. It wasn't that I was in this sort of deep spiritual state. I was just nervous um, and. and uh, then this experience opened up completely unwilled. There was no willing on my behalf. Um, opened up into this boundless place that seemed to be beyond time and space, beyond causality, beyond me as I know myself, beyond the world as I know the world. Um, in the experience, it, it's sort of what people must mean by perfection. I've never liked the language of perfection. I think it's, I think it's a fantasy word. But I can see, I could see in that experience what people might have meant by it. Yeah. Um, something in a voice, something that couldn't be made imperfect, something that couldn't be soiled, something that couldn't be in any sense 
damage and something that seemed to be have always been there and it just revealed itself to me it just revealed itself to me all of which all those categories were were um were absent in the experience so i i i don't know but i would imagine that what that's a sort of experience that buddhism means by the nature of mind except the nature of mind is too personal it's for me it felt like the nature of reality yeah uh, rather than mind because then that sounds like it's you know, the real nature of what's going on inside your head, and it wasn't anything remotely like that. And then the experience closed up, and I was back to being neurotic me. Um, uh, I'd just been given my new name, which means friendly brother, and I remember thinking, oh, no, I'm not friendly. Uh, I should be more friendly, it's so right. It's, he's probably saying I should be more friendly. What would my friends think that you're so friendly? I'm not, that's that you're not so friendly. You know, I just went went back into problem, problematizing neurotic me, you know. It wasn't that I was left with this blissful state for days, nothing, just like closed, you know. Um, uh, the door closed and I was thrown out of it. Although something must be still there because I'm still here, you know. Um, it's not so important. The experience is what you do with the experience. It's whether you're still there 30 years later. Yeah? Um, if you're not, it doesn't really matter what, what sort of breadth or depth of experience you've had. Unless you've dedicated your life to that experience, it doesn't really matter. You could have seen God, you could have had an experience of non-duality, it doesn't really matter. Unless you dedicate your life to it. Uh, otherwise, what's the point? You know, you, it's like bungee jumping or something, it's an experience you had. You know, um, so the, the test of real experience, of deep experience, is whether you reorientate your life to those experiences. And as Padmanandi said, one of the striking things about people who have near-death experiences is many of them reorientate their life, yeah? um, particularly in the, in, in towards compassion. They become noticeably um, less materialistic. One thing we, people don't communicate so much is often they have problems with their relationship. They, people often divorce after those experiences um, because it changes their worldview so much that they can no longer fit with someone. Um, yeah, so that that that's my touch of the nature of mind, and my sense of it in that moment was that it was infinitely extendable, deepable. Um, it wasn't like that was it, and it had any kind of boundaries. Um, I feel that if I'd been in a, a more loving, more mindful, if I'd been a deeper, more mature person, more of that experience could have stayed with me. As it was, it was so unfamiliar to me that something in me must have sort of recoiled from it, if you see me. Um, had I had more ex sort of experiences of that in meditation, and, you know, and meditation, it's not again that I've been very adept at meditation. Um, I've always believed in meditation. I first came to this Wednesday class 35 years ago, it's a bit more than that now, and um, couldn't meditate for toffee. You know, so it wasn't that I believed in it, I just used to fall asleep every time I tried to do it. Um, uh, so it, you know, it wasn't that I had that. Now, I think if I'd had more meditative experience, if I'd been a deeper person at that moment, perhaps more of that experience would have stayed with me. But anyway, here I am, I'm still here, uh, after uh, 30, 31 years now. Um, and it's not the only experience I've had of that kind, although in some way it's the deepest experience I've ever had. Yeah. Um, so that that's an image of the nature of mind. But I didn't, 
because I don't want to start saying what it is because it's just nuts. <laughs> like you can't say that. That's probably giving you a, 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 my experience of it. It's probably as close as we're going to get. And in a certain sense, in, in a certain sense, that's important. In another sense, it's not so important because it depends what you do with it. I've met people who come along to these classes and have, for instance, who've had much more um, profound meditation experiences than I have, but they don't do very much with it. Um, you know, I remember meeting somebody very years and years ago, and he's having these incredible kind of visionary experiences, which frankly I would have loved to have. Um, not that I'm jealous or anything. <laughs> um, Anyway, we didn't carry on with it. it was, and I met with another guy who had an incredible meditation experience. And then one day on a retreat, he just didn't. And then he just stopped meditating. I just thought, how stupid is that? <laughs> how nuts is that? Um, you know, he just gave up immediately. Incredible. Yeah. Anyway, so I wanted to say something, try and say something more practical about the nature of mind. Um, otherwise, we'll just lose ourselves in a drift of metaphysics and speculation. And Buddhism is particularly averse to speculation. It, it's, it, the, the Buddha was often characterised as he who doesn't speculate. Yeah. Um, and, and Bhante Sangharachita, my own teacher, is very, very um, uneasy about any kind of abstract speculation. So last week I, I you know, tried to give this sort of seminar on what happens when you die. And when Bhante was answered, he said, you'll soon find out. <laughs> Which is a brilliant Buddhist answer, you know, you'll soon find out. That was all he said. Yeah? Uh, in other words, you know, okay, you're going to die, so you'll soon, soon find out, so get on with living deeply, you know. Don't get into abstract speculation, that speculation that we're out. So, um, the first thing I wanted to say about the nature of mind is at a lower level, you know, I've tried to touch a little bit on to a deep level of the nature of mind, and perhaps it goes deeper still than that. I, I don't doubt that it does. Um, and it goes beyond death, which is about as far beyond anything anything can go. But at our ordinary level, whatever the nature of mind is, one of the things that's so tricky about it is it's so mixed up with world. Yeah? That your mind, my mind, is mixed up with the world. We talk about self and other, we talk about world and me, but actually you are mixed up with the world. I'm mixed up with the world. And when we say the world, that's a rather grand global thing. What I mean is I'm, you're mixed up, I'm mixed up with my day, I'm mixed up with other people. Uh, so I can't always tell whether I'm responding to another person or I'm responding to what that person means in my mind. Yeah. Um, Human beings are mixed up with the world. They're mixed up with their parents, they're mixed up with their partners, they're mixed up with their friends, they're mixed up with what they get attracted to, they're mixed up with what they get repelled by. Yeah? So, you know, a line of cocaine, a, um, a, a, a bottle of beer, um, you're mixed up with those things. The, the reason you're attracted to them is to do with you. You're mixed up with the world. Yeah? So as soon as we think of the nature of mind, we need to remember that mind is mixed up ineluctably with world. So that one of, the, one of the outcomes of that is if you're going to work with your mind, you need to work with your relationship to the world, which means you need to work on your relationships with other people. Because when we say the world, 
primarily we mean other people. Um, You need to, I need to, see that I'm all mixed up with other people and that I can't tell where my mind ends and where the world begins. Um, So one of the things I become aware of and hope you becoming aware of now is your patterns, yeah? Uh, I've been noticing this again with myself. I've got a certain sort of patterning in my mind which I keep coming back to again and again. Do you have that that yet? When you think, here I am again. You know, I went out with this person, which is completely different to that person. So how come I've ended up in exactly the same place as I did with that one, that one, and that one, you know? Or I've done this project, which seems different from that project, and yet I'm exactly in the same place I was with that project, yeah? Um, How come I've married someone that looks like my mother? You know, um, (laughs) how come I've got into that thing again, yeah? So what that is trying to show you, if only you can see it, and it's actually really difficult to see, because human beings want to think that there's this world out there that makes them behave in certain ways. What so much of our life is, and whether that life is your, you know, your written philosophy, your political opinion, what you've said on Facebook, very much of it, much more of it than we're willing to admit, is really autobiography autobiography thrown out onto the world. Yeah? Um, Nietzsche was the first, per, first philosopher to see this, that actually your philosophy was actually a, an expression of your mind, it's an expression of your, therefore, your biography. Yeah? Um, so you, we're, we're mixed up with the world. So if we're to learn about the nature of mind, one of the things we need to do, and one of the things that Buddhism really emphasises, is you need to take responsibility for the fact that you're mixed up with the world. So when I get, you know, as I say, I won't bore you with my psychology, but when I get, when I've recently been sort of really coming back to thinking, God, I've got here again. I've got to this point that I've got to again and again, and I can even remember getting to this point as a child, you know. I've got to this place again. Um, Will you start to, will I start to learn about that? Why am I wanting to repeat that again and again? Can I let go of blame? Buddhism has no place for blame at all, uh, including, interestingly, blaming yourself, but it has no place for blaming others either. Buddhism is it's like unforgiving about blame. Uh, the Buddha's not just not interested in it. If, if you try and blame someone, he's like, that's like, I'm not interested in that. Um, it never, it basically, blame never works. However convinced you are of your righteousness, it never, never works. Um, so Buddhism is first of all trying to say, look, you're mixed up with the world. So the first thing you need to do to know the nature of mind is own your S-H-I-T. <laughs> and your, what's the positive version? Anyway, your glory, let's say. Um, own up to your stuff. Try to see that you're mixed up with the world and try to ongoingly own your part in it. Take ownership of your life. Take agency in your life, yeah? Um, And and one of the ways we have to do that is renounce uh, blame. Because you can see, can't you, that one of the instincts, if we're mixed up with the world, whatever mind is, it's mixed up with the world. Some people want to say it's the world that causes it. I remember trying to get a friend of mine to admit to something. And, you know, he was having this conflict with somebody else. And he was basically saying, when Fred does X, I do Y. I was trying to say, yeah, but 
what do you do? He said, well, yeah, well, if Fred does X, I do Y. I said, no, yeah, no, no, let's leave Fred out. What do you do that makes Fred do X? No, no, when Fred does X, because I just couldn't get there, you know. He couldn't get away from it being the world that's causing mind, yeah? Um, so some people tend to do that. They tend to overvalue, overthink that the world is out there and objective to mind and is causing mind. Other people uh, tend to think solipsistically uh, that everything is like to do with my mind. Yeah? That you, so you can see in, if, world, if, if mind is mixed up ineluctably mixed up with world, you can either say, you can either try and reduce it to world or you can try and reduce the issue to mind, yeah, to me and my mind. One is a kind of weird objectivism, the other is a kind of solipsism. Um, you're seeing things, in, or everything in terms of yourself. Um, again, Ian McGilchrist, one of the people that we've been interviewing for this sequence of talks and on the retreat, we're going to, going to premiere these two new interviews with him, which are remarkable. He says that um, everything is a conversation. He says that mind, what we call mind, arises between. He's got a whole theory of betweenness. He says that they're they're a relationship before there are relata, is how how he puts it. That whatever mind is, it, it takes place between self and world. It's not located in one or the other. Yeah. So that's the first thing I wanted to say about mind. Whatever it is, um, it's mixed up with your with the world. It's mixed up with other people. It's mi- your biography is mixed up with your life trajectory. Yeah, you keep on finding your 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 signature written on new experiences, and that should tell you something about yourself. And it's difficult to learn because human beings don't want to read that signature. I don't often enough. I want to say, no, no, it's, no that, yeah, that's true, yesterday, but this one, that really is <laughs> And here's my five reasons why it's their fault. Yeah. Um, massively compelling, never works. Yeah. Um, don't try it, I've tried it. Um, so that's the first thing I wanted to say about mind, more practically, is it's mixed up with the world. And the first thing you do need to do, from a Buddhist point of view, you need to take responsibility for that. You need to start to get your life back not keep writing your signature on your partner, on your mother, on your boss, um, on a particular grouping of humanity, men, women, black, white, straight, gay. You know, you need to own your life back again. The second thing I wanted to say about mind, and this comes from my own teacher, uh, Bhante Sangharachita, he's a pragmatist, really. He would want to say, you know, never mind what scientists say, never mind what philosophers say, what you've got a mind, you can work on it. And what you find, if you look at your mind, is you've kind of got two minds. And he would say something like, look, I'm not talking philosophically, I'm not talking uh, metaphysically, I'm trying to talk practically in a way that will actually help you. So you've got two kinds of minds, or two kinds of modes of mind, yeah? That's what he would say. And one of those modes is reactive, yeah? That if you're honest with yourself, and being honest with yourself is a virtue, remember, if you're honest with yourself and you're honest with other people, you have to admit that you tend to react to things. You react to other people, you react to certain situations, you react to stress, you react to anything that threatens you, and you tend to react in habitual and unaware kinds of ways. In other words, you tend to react in the same kind of way. 
So I tend, when I react, for instance, I implode very habitually. I always have, even as a child. I very, very rarely explode. Um, I know people who habitually explode. Um, I'm not, I don't think imploding is betting. It's, another, it's just another kind of hatred. I always think it's the English kind of hatred. That's what I was brought up with. You're perfectly polite, and you, the door is closed. You know? Um, but, you know, so I had that habitual reaction. I still do it now, but when something, um, I react to something, I tend to implode. Some people explode. Some people just distract themselves by watching another YouTube thing. Someone, some people love to give their opinions. Some people filibuster. Do you know that word? It means just to, to give a cloud of rationalizations for why it's not their fault. Um, you will tend to, I will tend to react in habitual, unaware ways. Yeah? And reactions are really a chance to get to know the nature of mind. Yeah? They're, they're, anytime you react, they're a kind of, they're a kind of um, sinkhole into the nature of mind. Why am I reacting in this particular way? There are other ways I could react. Um, it's amazing how your reactive stories, you think, no, that's just, that's just how it is, you know. Um, you know, I've met people who, you know, think, oh, well, I, I never get the girl or I never get the boy because I'm either, I'm not look good looking, I'm not, it's just not true. It's just a story, but it keeps on proving itself. And they think it's just the truth, you know. I've met people with really quite distorted senses of themselves, you know, young, handsome, or beautiful people who have a completely distorted sense of themselves and just think, oh, yeah, they're, 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 you know, I'm just not. It's really weird, yeah? But you just think it's not weird, it's just true, yeah? Um, so you have this reactive pattern of mind, and we need to sort of start to notice that. And one of the things that meditation is about is getting you to notice that reactive pattern of mind. You need to start to uh, empathise with that reaction. You need to say, oh, gosh, why do you do that? Why do you need to tell yourself that particular story? Why you could tell yourself this story, which would be quite different. Why do you want that one? I was talking to somebody today trying to say, why have you chosen to read your experience, you know, kind of translate your experience, interpret your experience in that way? Yeah? So what we do in a reactive mind is we mistake our interpretations for experience for experience. Or, or put more simply, we mistake thoughts for facts. Yeah? So we've got this reactive mind, that's what Sangharachita Bhante would say. But he says you've also got a creative mind. Yeah? You've got a mind that doesn't always react, that can create. He means that literally in the artistic sense, but more importantly he means in the non-reactive sense that sometimes, like just the other night I had a conversation with someone who was very angry with me for various reasons, and I didn't react. And uh, as soon as you don't react, a new world opens up to you, which you'd have to call creative. Instead of taking it personally, which is what I can easily do, instead of imploding, which is what I'm, my own patterning is to do, I just said, okay, well, oh, well why is that? Well, tell me more about it. And, I, and it was wonderful. It was like a liberation that my mind has within it, and your mind has within it, the capacity to respond creatively rather than react habitually. Yeah? And Bhante Sangharachita says, well, that's what the nature of mind is. You can either react habitually, going round and round the same track, again and again and again, or you can learn to respond creatively. And he would say, and Buddhism would say, and the Buddha himself would say, 
the choice is yours. And the choice is yours in every moment. So as you listen to me, you can respond creatively or you can react habitually. In a, in a hot room, you can react habitually or you can respond creatively. Every moment, one of the burdens of our human life is that every moment you have that choice. Yeah? Which kind of mind do you want? That's what Buddhism is particularly concerned with. Not what is the nature of mind, but you've got these two kinds of mind, which, what are you going to do? Which one do you want? It's up to you. The Buddha's not going to say, not going to save you from your reactive mind. He's just going to say, do you really want to do that? Is that what you want to make of your life? Do you really want to keep on expressing your opinion about politics on Facebook and just become that sort of person? You know, is, is that it? You know, that's what the Buddha was. He might say it a bit sweeter than that, but basically saying that, yeah. I don't think he knew about Facebook. Anyway, um, so that's my second thing I want to say about the nature of mind. Yeah? Um, my first thing, well, I've got a few things, haven't I? So the first of all, mind is a mystery. The, this language of the nature of mind is getting at something ineluctably deep and fathomless, which perhaps I'll try and touch on at the end. But let's be a bit more pragmatic tonight, because I don't want to end with speculation. I want to end with something we can do. So the first thing there is that your mind is mixed up with the world, um, mixed up with other people. Your signature is written on what you call your life. And you could own that back. And if you own that back, you own your life back. You own your energy back. You own your agency back. Yeah? Um, your life becomes yours to fashion. And in fashioning it, your, your choice, your great choice, and my choice still, 35 years after I first came to the centre, in, in each moment is, is, do I want to be habitual and reactive and go round and round and round the same thing? Or do I want to keep learning how to be responding and responsive and creative? Yeah? And times that's easy, times that's really hard. Yeah? Um, really hard sometimes. Um, no one's saying it's easy, really. But the last thing I wanted to say, and in a way that just this arises from that point about a re uh, reacting habitually and or responding creatively, and, and this is a sort of backward look at the whole nature of mind so far. We've gotten done six months, and then we're going to have this this big, uh, you know, big retreat uh, with over a hundred people exploring the nature of mind. Uh, watching Ian McGrillskis talk about the nature of the divine, about um, about beauty, value, and purpose. Um, we're going to be trying to work with our mind because that's the most important thing. Um, one of the things that I've been struck by looking back so far, and I, there's lots of other people I want to uh, interview if we, if we manage to do the project continuing on. Um, you know, I'd love to talk to more people about near-death experiences. I'd love to talk to more people about um, past life memories. I'd like to talk to more pragmatic philosophers. I'd like to talk to more scientists. Um, I'm particularly keen on talking about an octopus for some reason. I've been in contact with someone in Australia who's written the, the main book on the octopus. They're spooky. You know, they're, they're, they're the nearest thing on Earth to an alien. They're so different to us. They're, if you want to compare our mind with another mind, they, they're as close as you can get to an alien. And they're weirdly aware. They're much more aware than they should be. They, have, they only live for about two years. But they're weirdly intelligent in a way that we don't understand. Yeah. So if we want to look at the nature of mind, we really should be comparing ourselves with an octopus. Come bring one in now. <laughs> Enter octopus. Um, does the eye thing. 
change its colour. Um, so there's lots more I want to do. But what I want to leave us with for now is looking back, you know, Ian McGilchrist talking about the hemispheres of the brain. He's got this incredible uh, uh, hemisphere uh, hypothesis about the nature of mind and, and about consciousness itself, which I think is one of the most uh, radical idea, modern ideas uh, that I've ever come across, which um, has incredible explanatory power. Uh, you know the value of an idea when you, by what it's called, it's, it's explanatory power. What if you apply that idea to culture, to all sorts of areas of life, what does it start to explain? And you start to find it explains all sorts of things. We've talked to Bernardo Castrop, who's a non-materialist uh, philosopher. We've talked to um, Penny Satori, who, who did the first um, long study of, of people who had near-death experiences. She's a, um, a Welsh woman who's in the first long experience in the UK. But what struck me about all of them, pretty much, I can't think of an exception, is that it's fascinating and absorbing and important, but none of them offer a path. Yeah? None of them seem to me uh, to offer a path. They offer a vision, uh, even a vision of mind and a vision of reality, but they don't offer a path. Now, what Buddhism is primarily is a path. The Buddha was um, what's called metaphysically reticent. He was very, very cautious to say things about the nature of reality, to say things about the nature of mind. He would say, kind of say, never mind all about that, you're not ready for that. You need a path. You need a path in which you can actually grow and change and move from being primarily someone who's like a hamster on a wheel, going round and round habitual reactions, doing that thing again and again, doing that destructive pattern, doing that again and again, that addictive tendency again and again, that foolish um, romantic thing that you do again and again. You need to get off that kind of wheel and you need to get onto something more like a spiral of creativity. Yeah? And that is primarily a path. What the Buddha taught, what we teach here, really is primarily a path of change. Yeah? I think that path can be illuminated by discussions about what is the nature of mind. And I think that's, it's, it's wonderful to hear somebody who used to work at CERN really argue against materialism, to say it's stupid, to say, look, look at the, the, the experiments they're doing in LSD. What LSD does, it closes down the mind, but you get more experience. What people have in near-death experiences is, um, Eben Alexander was pretty much brain dead and he had this colossal, experience. That's the absolute opposite of what should happen if you think that consciousness is created by mind. Because if you close down the mind, you'll get less consciousness. What you seem to get is more consciousness. Yeah? So it, I'm finding it exciting and illuminating, and I want to keep on exploring that. But what's really important is a path. You can, you can explore that till the cows come home, still not change very much. That, that's not a great outcome. Yeah. You need a path, and what Buddhism offers you is a path. Yeah?